you must be listening to the Goblin Broadcast Network at gbn.com.com. Amazing! Follow the Path, the Bears Grove Podcast. Adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Hi, and welcome to the Bears Grove. My name is Sam Chupp. I'll be your host today. Today on the program, we have an interview with Chris Chen, who is a game designer and an advocate on the Gamers of Color live journal community. We'll be talking about race and role-playing games. My conversation with Chris goes on for quite a while, so I'm going to keep this very short. This recording is one hour, five minutes, and so without further ado, I'd like to go ahead and get started. After the break, we'll go right into the interview. The following is a promo for 12voltheater.com. Hello, my name is Alice. I'm adrift in a world of ever-shifting roads. A world with little boys in overalls with dirty wings. A world where a dark wind can eat one person down to the bone, while leaving the other still holding their hand. My destiny was cut from me by the knife I hold in my hand. Will I find salvation? Will I find damnation? Help me decide in a podcast like no other. Vote on the decisions I must make at the end of each podcast. Then find out the results two weeks later. Available exclusively at 12foldtheater.com. I'm waiting for you to join me. Just down the road. Handcrafted Stories from a Unique Podcaster. 12voltheater.com. Hello, and I'd like to welcome Chris Chin to our virtual studio here. Chris? Hey, how's it going? Hey. Chris is uh, a person I met on the gamers of color live journal community and he had the presence of mind to comment about the bears grove and in a way this is sort of a follow-up to that but um, in the process of reading some of his online writings i've come up with a lot of questions about race and role-playing games and um, i'd like to have a discussion with you chris if you don't mind sure thing okay um first of all let's give people uh, an idea of where you're coming from as a gamer and as a as a game designer. Sure thing. Um, I started role playing about when I was twelve, and I had gotten the Red Box D and D set, and so I've been, you know, playing a lot of different games since then. Um, to the topic, what's really interesting is that the lo- one of the longest running campaign groups I had was all people of color. And that kind of gave me this really interesting outlook as I started playing with different groups. Um, ended up moving around the country several times and meeting different people and playing with different groups and watching the social dynamics. And as I became uh, more aware of like the politics and things of racism and sexism, watching how those would filter into the actual gaming experience as well as the actual books and the ways in which things are portrayed, whether we're talking uh, the people – by description or the actual images. So all that kind of came into a bit of the writing in terms of race and role-playing. So you're, uh, you have been um, involved in gaming since you were, uh, like, what, eight? 
Did well, you say? Uh, 12, pretty 12? much. 12? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. That's amazing. Um, uh, that's about the, as long as I have, and um, I can imagine uh, you've had a lot of different stories and, and games as you've gone along. Um, can you give us an idea from a design standpoint or, um, you know, what you'd like to to say essentially in the direction of uh, the kind of things you learn during those games? Well, one thing I thought was really interesting is that um, just in my early years, one thing that was really crucial to games is people are always, it's who you play with. And that's absolutely true that, you know, you want to play with folks you get along with. But part of that was it was also used as a bit of a dodge to avoid the fact that some rules didn't cover what you want them to do or certain rules just weren't very fun to play with. So that was sort of, you know, an earlier phase. Um, over the last few years, we've watched people start changing design and making it more to do games that do exactly what they want. And so that became this interesting design phase where people weren't just looking at the rules themselves, but they were looking at how the groups interact and how the rules affect how the groups interact. So part of that became this thing where instead of just saying, you know, oh, well, this is a gamist game because people are about kicking in doors and this is, you know, a story game because we're talking about angst. It became this thing where people start saying, there's a lot of range of games we could do and how they fit together and how do they not fit together when people are trying to do different things? And more importantly, what's actually going on at the table? Are these people, there's, there's all the social games that people play underlying that. And to some degree, you know, that's just the nature of being people. And some degree that's sort of, you know, there's room in which games can expose those. And so you can clear that out and just have the game without the drama, you know, the interpersonal drama of people, not the characters. And then there's games that kind of make it easier to hide that and dodge that. And you end up with some unfun play that way. So, I mean, if anything, I'm looking at it from the standpoint of I like games where people know what the game is supposed to do and they have a healthy understanding of what they're trying to do as players coming together. And so it doesn't become this thing where people are arguing about the rules when, in fact, you know, they're arguing about something else that happened. You know, it could be they're both trying to date the same girl or something, and it becomes this dodge. There are other topics and the subtext of the game, uh, essentially, that, yeah, are, yeah. that are being discussed or interacted with. And there are issues, uh, interpersonal issues, um, but do they become race issues at some point? Oh, well, certainly. I mean, that's that's completely the venue through which race issues play out. Um, you'll notice sometimes situations where where folks will do stuff like it's it's a, it's a, the same issue about having voice. Um, if played in games which are supposedly taking place in, you know, like, say, ancient China and someone, you know, will tell you, oh, no, women are like this. And it's like, well, to a degree, but then again, you know, there's it's a full range of human experiences, but these folks have only seen two dimensional. And so instead of it just being, let's talk about history and argue about it as geeks would argue about it, it becomes more of a thing of it's my voice as a white man versus your voice as an Asian man. And of course I know what your people are like. And of course I'm going to tell you because I've read it as opposed to what you may have experienced. And so you see those kind of subtext play up. Um, it's it's very interesting. That, that's thing. kind of like uh, it seemed to me to be a little bit um, based on things like the Oriental Adventures book, 
Right, right. You know, Very much. Gets a sense that that's their full sum of, you know, scholarship. Is well, reading. You know, some, sometimes and sometimes they went further, but at the same point, there's this interesting thing that happens when people focus on this is how different people are, is that they lose the word people and all they remember is different. And that becomes how they portray people and that becomes how they see people. And it plays out in games. I can see that um, from a design from a from a design standpoint. When we were working at White Wolf, there was a lot of what I guess the designers would call, and I you know I can have I'd have to be included in this group as well, uh, cultural referencing. Uh, but uh, basically, at a certain point, I'm familiar with the idea that at a certain point, a cultural reference becomes a, a racial stereotype or even a, a racist trope. Um, and I guess the question is, where is that line? How far do we have to walk in someone else's shoes to be able to fully understand their culture or at least get to a point where we aren't breaking, you know, we aren't culturally appropriating their basic myths filing the serial numbers off and plastering them up on a, uh, a RPG book? Well, this is actually a question um, someone in the design community asked me uh, maybe about two years ago. They were doing a game about the Wild West, and of course they, want to, they were curious about, well, how should I deal with Native Americans? And I told them, I said, well, you know, there are tons of Native American groups who are really aware of how they've been portrayed, and you know, and are into media analysis. You can contact them. You know, it's like it's not hard to do a search online. It's not hard to contact some schools. There are people who you can talk to and do some research and find out where that line is between. Okay, you know, we're not trying to write a textbook here, but at the same point, we're trying to do, we're trying to do the bare minimum of human respect to the people we're portraying. And the interesting thing is that. Um, when this question comes up and I give this answer to people, they usually never follow through. It's, it's sort of like there's this fear of actually having to, to, to pass muster, to interact with people of color who might say, well, you know, this part's good, this part's problematic, you know? Yeah, I can see that. It's, they're, they don't want to necessarily bring them into the design process, or maybe it's just a uh, fear or I don't, I, I I wouldn't be able to speculate. I I know that I, I think I think it mostly boils down to fear. Hmm. It's um there's definitely a level of fear and it's it's you know I've, I've seen other folks have discussions um like right now people are talking about politics and you know there's this very interesting thing where people are willing to say what why other people are voting based on race or gender and instead of actually talking to some of these people and and with the internet, their voices are out there. It's, it's not hard to find in the same situation here. Um, if you want to portray a culture, you, you could read all these books, and you know that's worthwhile, but you could also just check in and meet some of the people. And talk to them. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean you have to take their word as God, and it doesn't mean you have to like check in with a billion of them, but you know, people are willing to do research and find out how much like 14th century French, you know, currency is worth, but they're not willing to just take the time to shoot off a few emails and talk to some folks and say, well, 
I'd like to, you know, I'd like to include a portrayal that I feel is, is, you know, good based on whatever moral standards they're working with. And there's a fear and that they usually don't follow through. And I thought that was a most fascinating thing because they'll also spend, you know, hours and hours online help, having people help them design their, their system aspects. So, yeah, it's not that they're not into collaboration. It's that yeah. they just don't – they're just afraid. Well, that's interesting. Um, I know that when I was designing – I had to design for White Wolf a um, uh, a section on the uh, Australian magic, uh, Aboriginal Australian people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that I was terrified really uh, to start out with because I – it was such a huge topic, and I realized there is like over 700 different languages, which would be considered Aboriginal languages, which mm-hmm. meant that there's like 700 different kinds of culture there. Um, right. And there's no, I mean, when you have uh, 15,000 words, you have to figure out, you know, how to present that information in a way that will actually be meaningful to somebody. Um, I did a lot of studies, but I also referenced some people um, on the on the internet uh, through chat mm-hmm. um, and got sort of a read on them from my drafts. You know, does this sound ridiculous or what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and some of those people were keyed into the uh, Aboriginal community. Um, I, I thought it was awesome that they have a essentially a tent. Uh, capital on the on the uh, front lawn of the you know where Parliament is in Australia, mm-hmm. um, and you can walk right in there. That it's like their capital, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty, pretty cool. But at any rate, what I what I wanted to say is you know I found that that was the hardest part is opening yourself up to what was the reality um, and talking to people and hoping. Because, you know, it's one of those things where you can say, well, I just didn't have time to research. Or you can say, well, this is important to get it right. Well, there's also this really interesting thing, um, like to to use White Wolf as an example. Mm -hmm. um, One of the best examples of stuff I saw was First Edition Mage. They have, you know, the first story you read is basically about a Latino guy who practices martial arts and does magic. And I was like, wow, that is a completely, you know, modern, you know, an interesting take about how we have this cross-cultural thing happening. And then you will see images in there where you have, like, of course the Asian girl has the katana, and it's sort of like, huh, you know, I know some writers are getting it and some writers aren't. And there's this interesting thing about other cultures where they're always portrayed as being locked into this one into this one era or this one cultural stereotype instead of the fact that cultures do mix, cultures change. You know, you can totally do a game about, say, Aztecs, you know, in Aztec times or in the Conquistadors, but what would it be like if you were talking about what's Aztec culture now? What's it, what, you know, what remains of it? Who are the descendants? You know, there's a whole bunch of room to tell modern stories that doesn't really get to happen for a lot of people of color, especially in the role-playing genre. Hmm. So the, you know, I, I have, um, I have seen people have, uh, spoken about, for example, changeling, which is a largely Celtic slash Norse, uh, 
mythological base except for the the, the issue who you know essentially i remember during the changeling process when we were designing changeling i remember going look folks we don't really have i mean we're basically cutting out a large chunk of the planet here right how are we well, there's a lot of mythology <laughs> yeah how are we dealing with that you know why aren't we talking about for example native american uh fairies you know why can't we talk about those it's very much indicative i mean it's not like it's it's going to be far into the to the game audience because basically they're going to already have ac uh, have access to that through some of the books that are in the fantasy genres um mm -hmm. why can't we put that in there but it was thought to be no, no, we, you know, people want this. Um, they want trolls and they want pukas and they want, you know, beautiful uh, she uh, who are lily white. And they want, uh, you know, they want that Celtic stereotype, which, right. you know, actually, uh, I think offends a lot of Irish people, too. Um, to be honest, I, right. I, you know, I think that's an appropriation as well. Um, but at the very least, I feel like, you know, the issue was there, uh, which was something that it was a design choice that I stuck to, um, and uh, the concept of a storyteller. But then, you know, later on, I got to a point where I realized that, okay, uh, a lot of people could see that as like a magical negro trope right which is not something that i ever wanted <laughs> but right it can be definitely put in there as this is the guy who shows up whenever he's wanted and goes away when he's not wanted right. I, that, that, you know that's it's it's a it was a sort of a bad revelation but it was important to know, you know, it's an important thing. To, I, I, I don't mind the truth about something, mm -hmm. especially when, you know, it does help you sort of grow as a, as a designer. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be that way. Right. Well, I think it's, I think it's interesting because it's, um, it's, it's, it's one of those things where people often aren't acquainted enough with the, the culture to be able to put enough into it. Um, not only as a designer, but the other side is what do you get from the players when you put something out there? For example, you could intend something to be a certain way as a designer, and the players read something completely different into it, and then you have this, this mess on your hands. You're like, I didn't intend for this to be read this way. Um, and that's part of the problem with communication. It's, it's interesting because uh, a game, I think, does a really good job in terms of its representation is uh, Dirty Secrets, which is a modern crime kind of game. But the interesting thing is you see a whole bunch of people of color in the photographs, and in only one case do they look like they could be criminal, but they're portrayed even in such a way that they're still humanized. And, you know, obviously the players could pick this up and they're like, we're totally doing L.A. gangs, and it's going to be, you know, what up, boo, and all kinds of madness. And, you know, based on what they saw and, you know, watching a couple of movies and, you know, gangster rap videos. Or it could be something, you know, where they actually start saying, okay, we could do a real story based with real people, you know, with real concepts and, 
you know, a bit more closer to reality and identify with these people and explore the fact that there's all these levels of of things going on when people are under high stress and you know in our society. It's really, you know, part of it is the players and uh, you know, your side as a designer is saying, what am I putting out as a mass media product? Am I putting out something that reinforces these? Am I putting out something that destroys these? Am I putting out something that comes out in at least some kind of manner in which I thought about what I'm portraying and who I'm portraying? And it's um it's something that folks don't think about sometimes. Like they're like, well, you know, D and D isn't you know real Europe, and of course people know it's not real Europe, but how many people know, you know, it's like, well, when you portray voodoo, voodoo, is this, how much does this actually tie to the real active practice? You know, it's like, mm, hard to say, especially if people don't even know what, if the reading is real or if it's just a, you know, new age gimmick thing. It's all the same to them. And so you could be reinforcing stuff and never know it. Yeah. I, I wonder if you had it, uh, had a chance to read my um, bootleg uh, voodoo rules for uh, World of Darkness. Have you ever seen those? I have not. Okay. Um, were those actually published or were those? No, they were. I I wrote them separately and published them on my website for uh, a mush actually called Cajun Nights, which uh, had no. I mean, it was the it was the biggest joke for the longest time. Here they are. They've got a New Orleans vampire mush, but they have no people of color uh, in prominence, and they also have no voodoo, <laughs> which kind of yeah. just made me go, "Huh? What?" Um, well, I, I really, um, from the published stuff, I really, um, I felt it was really problematic and twitchy because it was a lot of, um, a lot of ways in which, like you know okay, here's what this figure represents and here's their story and now they're completely reversed in terms of like the vampire you know, the vampire mythology you know, if you're talking, you know, if we take vampire mythology and say, oh, it's Cain and Abel and everyone you know, okay, so Cain's the bad guy okay, we can totally accept he's a vampire he's the bad guy in biblical terms but you take someone like, say, Obatala, king of peace king of life, you know, and now he's, you know Vampire extraordinaire, kind of like, well, hmm, you know how much you? I think you went at 180 with that kind of stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. I mean, or like, for example, they they drafted Baron Samedi, who course. is not really even. I mean, you know, I, I I I took issue with it, but basically they're like, you're overruled. You're, you know, this is about zombies and it's cool. So right. be okay with it. Well, I'm not okay right. with it <laughs> because you guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, it's, it's a level of um. The thing is, is that this level of disrespect to people who like, it's like these are American citizens. Just go down and talk to them, mail them, email them. Like, like you can talk to people and learn about this and figure out a way in which to be respectful. I mean, there is a reason why in Vampire. You may have had Cain and Abel, but you didn't see Jesus up on the, you know, you didn't see Jesus stat up as, you know, uber vampire. And that's because it would be very offensive to a lot of people because they're practicing this religion. And it's not saying there isn't a place for real world religions to be put in the games. It's, it's saying that it's being done in this way in which, you know, it's, it's, it's disrespectful to the people who practice it. It's, it's portraying an image. There's already a negative image about voodoo. 
there's a negative image about any kind of traditional African religion or pretty much non-Christian religion in this country. And so it's sort of like when you do these things, it, it, it feeds into negative stuff. I mean, it's like, oh, look, we have this, you know, we have a villain who kills babies. Okay, that's bad. He's a Jewish villain who kills babies. Well, that kind of feeds into stuff that people have had, and that's not cool to, to perpetrate. Yeah, and same thing goes for voodoo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, if you look at it, voodoo is the is one of the you know truly American religions. It was born here. You know, the... right? I mean, it's a mishmash. Of, some cases it's a mishmash, in some cases it's things that are hidden under other you know other trappings. But you know, there's so many different traditions and practices within it. But all people want to see is you know curses and death and zombies and it's sort of like wow you know there's all the aspects of you know people achieving you know becoming better people enlightenment becoming in balance with nature things which normally are ascribed to very you know native american traditions um but that are definitely part of it because it's also you know very earth-based tradition exactly and we we and just uh, today, I was posting on a, on an internet uh, internet forum about the concept of werewolf and the Native American traditions um, depicted in there. I mean, basically, they're not Native American traditions; they're made up traditions. Uh, the, the tribes of the Ukatana and the Wendigo uh, are fictitious tribes, but you know, they do tend to point like pretty much all the, what they call flats. I mean, in, in white wolf terms, they all point to a stereotypical thing. And the reason for that is partly because people want to be able to hang a short sentence on all of them so that when you're choosing your character, you can easily pick it. I mean, but at the same time, what that does is put a straitjacket on you. So. Well, what I think, what I think, um, especially with like those kinds of splat-based games, is that um, there's a tendency to push things towards that two-dimensionalness instead of saying, "Wow, there's this whole exploration that you can do." And there's definitely design things you can do with that. Um, you can definitely take a general splat and make as part of your system a thing where you have to specialize. You have to like fill out exactly where and how things come together. So, you know, if it was um, Mage being the big white wolf game that I know, if it was, you know, their big martial arts, you know, the big martial arts Mage guys, and you know, the Akashics, instead of just saying you're an Akashic, it's like, okay, well, here's this guy who grew up, you know, doing Wing Chun and, you know, you know, basically hanging out on the streets, and then you start developing this real continuity. You you go into the character's history, their their history of their lineage. You know, you don't have to do pages and pages, but just an idea so it's more than just random Akashic. You know, same sense uh, for white, or for werewolf. It's, you know, these people are just, you know, these tribes. It's like, well, where did they grow up? You know, did they even know that they had this blood in them? How much blood makes them, you know, actually go over into being a werewolf of this tribe? Um, you know, they kind of went over a bit of that, but there was some really interesting, you know, ways in which a lot of that's dodged. Um, and in just race discussions online, we talk about the tendency where people, when they want to dodge, talking about race, I'm 164th Cherokee. My great-great-grandmother was, you know, a Indian princess, and it's sort of like, 
well, that might be nice, but how much of that do you really know? How much of that have you really connected to? Or is this just something you pull out when you when someone starts talking about race and you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> you know, um, the how one much analogy- of that, that culture are you actually uh, have you actually steeped in? Right. Well, even even the most basic one I tell people is I say, if you go missing, who what will the what will your family tell tell the cops to go looking for? Will they say you're he's one sixty fourth Cherokee? You know, it's like the police aren't going to be looking for that. And, you know, when we talk about race relations and racism, it's based on how you look. So naturally, if you're 164th and no one sees it, you, you know, it, under, under, the, under the hierarchy of racism, you're not. You know, which basically plays into the roles of, you know, when we talk about passing and colorism and how you look. And it's really interesting because that, you know, that's, something we see in role playing is that you know if you're sitting at the table you know it's like everyone knows everyone can see who you are you know you can't um you know i could be playing whatever but you know it's like you see who i am and so for whatever biases are there are there hmm that's true um and that brings up uh, something uh, I also wanted to talk to you about, and that is, uh, you know, the, uh, the idea that race in many games, well, in D and D race is an attribute on your character sheet, character sheet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there's no, you know, I mean, they do have half orcs, half elves, and they don't, but you never ever see quarter elves and quarter orcs, right? You know, and and I think that when you start talking about, I mean, for for myself, this is one of the reasons why I've put aside D and D as a structure or calling the games that I play D and D because they've left D and D way behind. Mm-hmm. Um, the game, games that I play, I mean, that we, we, we've we evolved out of Dungeons and Dragons, the, the games that we originally started playing. But um, I don't really think that, I mean, I, I'm just wondering what you think about the fact that, you know, there's this sort of, I, I don't know, uh, an atavism on, uh, of game design of here is this race uh, attribute on your character sheet. Well, I think the race attribute is not so much problematic as um, the ways in which they handle it in terms of their color text and their setting. Um, for example, you know, so you have a, you have a race attribute, and it basically gives you a set of stats. You know, it affects your stats. That's that's what it does in D and D, and that's you know whatever. Um, you might as well like put in instead of dwarf, you know, short, stocky guy. You know, elf intellectual magic guy um those totally work fine the problem is the way D handles stuff like um one obviously alignment and race where you know basically alignment was tied to race for sentient beings in which case you must kill all of these type because they are inherently evil and will grow up to be evil and you know in fantasy there's room for like look it's a horde of zombies they're evil okay they're zombies but then there's stuff in old school D&D modules where you, where you crack it open and, you know, you're going into the lair and you kill the guards and the monsters. And then you come to a room that's full of women and children of the species. And so it's like, well, what do you do then? 
You know, what is that saying? You know, at that point, it's at that point you're playing in genocide. You know, it's like it's not we're fighting monsters and they're these abstract things. It's like why are we rolling to beat up children? And what does that say about the game? And then, you know, that's just one aspect. The second aspect being um, D&D has this really interesting thing about the way it dances about those half-races. Half-elves, you know, you don't hear, you know, they're half-elves, of course. They're nice, they're great. Half-orcs, they're almost always talked about in terms of being the result of rape. Uh, interesting thing they had is in Unearthed Arcana, the most recent version, they had this whole set of rules for bloodlines for, you know, while somewhere, you know, in my past I had, you know, a pit fiend, you know, in my bloodline, and, and now I have these, you know, demonic traits that affect my stats. Almost all of the ones that involved evil monster types always had some kind of reference to rape, which just kind of plays at this idea of, like, um, miscegenation, you know, the idea that races should not mix or certain races should not mix. And the only way they could possibly mix is because of, you know, rape not that you know well maybe maybe someone was in love maybe these were two evil people who fell in love maybe they were shape changed maybe all the kinds of things that you know happen in cheesy D&D novels that would totally justify it or you right. know the giant legion of drizzit fanboys you know who well, he's drow but he's good you know it's like all that's just tossed out the window um to to this whole race thing and it's it, the most another recent one was a module called the slaughtered the shattered gates of slaughter guard in which case uh, one of the dungeons was filled with half drow and they were being supplied by some nobles and the nobles were evil because they were sleeping with drow and that was the only reason they were considered evil that was the only crime that had I had read, you know, I read through, and I was like, so what are these guys doing? Like, what makes them evil? Are they summoning demons? Are they, oh, no, I mean, pretty much the only thing that makes them unusual than any of the folks around them was the fact that they were sleeping with Drow, which makes me go, so is this like, you know, basically are we the lynch mob to, you know, take out the, you know, to take out these folks who are race traders and, you know, mixing blood? It's, 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 it was astounding. I was, I think it came out in 2004, 2005. It came out very recently to where I'm looking at, like, I can't believe you're writing this. And it wasn't just that as an illusion. It's the fact every description of the drow or half drow was their dusky skin. Right. You know, like, I mean, I, I can go read novels from the 20s if I want to get those descriptions. Right. Oh, man. Um yeah, and speaking of novels of the 20s, uh, you know, Spear of the Century does deal with this a little, but um, – and in fact, I understand that there's a book coming out um, by – the, the person's name escapes me, but which is going to basically take the issue of racism in the 20s head on. Um, are you aware of that book? I, I, I remember hearing something about it. Uh, the only thing I had heard was I heard one where they were going to play around with, like, you know, sort of stereotypes, but I didn't really hear the whole details about it. Right. Um, Have you played Spare the Century yet? I haven't yet. I did pick it up and take a look at it. Um, it's got some interesting stuff going on, and I'm curious to see if they, you know, if they're going to do anything mechanical to play around with that. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – and I think that's really what – where it starts to come into play is um, 
you know, the fact that that race in D and D um, does plug into your mechanics means that it's a system matters thing. Means that it does have an effect on play, and it needs to be dealt with that way. Um, right. And I think that if you compare D and D third edition and second edition, I mean, at the very least, this business of there can be no half orc paladins goes away. Right. But I mean, you know, that was even worse. Like, you know, you couldn't have, you have to have an e, uh, half orcs could only be evil. I believe in second edition, if I remember correctly, well, they could be, I think they might, they might be able to be chaotic neutral, but I'm not sure. Right. But it was just like, okay, why? Right. Um, and I mean, the only half work that was in my, uh, one of my games, uh, actually was a foundling, um, had been left there by his mother, uh, who was the, who was the, uh, the orc part, the orc side of things left there on the, the steps of the monastery. Um, and they took him in and trained him and, you know, raised him there. Um, but you know, well, there's this uh, really interesting way, though, in general, which fantasy uses, you know, these other races as ways to um, to kind of play with race issues or, you know, to, to dodge really playing with race issues. Um, trying to remember uh, the author of Wizard of Earthsea. Jeez. Uh, Ursula Le Guin. Ursula Le Guin. She has a couple of really great essays on that. Um, just talking about how the racialized other. Um, you know, whether they're aliens or they're orcs, you know, they, they're, they're very interesting in the ways in which they get projected. They're projections of racial issues. Um, you, so you, you take a look at orcs. You know, orcs, oh, they raid, they attack, they're savages. They can't build their own technology. They take from people. And it's like, well, didn't we hear this argument when they were colonizing it and pushing out the Indians off the land? You know, oh, they attacked our town. They don't have technology. They're savage. You know, there you go. Um, you know, if we go to sci-fi, aliens. Okay, here comes these aliens who are going to kill all of us, you know, straight genocide, and take our land. Well, gee, isn't that a bit of a projected fear based on, you know, history? <laughs> You know, it's like, yeah. and there, there it is. You know, it's, um, it's really, um, it's both fascinating and kind of terrifying because I look at role-playing games and I say, we have something in which we can use for escapism. And not in the negative, I don't want to deal with reality way, but sort of like this, I can take a break from whatever drama I had to deal with and, you know, do something that could be as simple and mindless as I beat a dragon and I felt empowered, or it could be, I'm in a world where, you know, I'm appreciated for being a hero, even no matter how people see me in this world. And, you know, it's, it's a health, you know, it's like watching TV. It's an escape. The only difference here is that we can make stories for ourselves. We can make our own heroes. And if we're playing games where even our own heroes are treated less than, lower than, or othered, you know, that's, that's pretty terrible. You know, the best thing I can aspire, even in my, you know, fantasy is to be a second-class citizen. Exactly. I, I, and I, I mean, that's, we don't play role-playing games necessarily to, to feel that. I mean, you know, even if, um, from, from my 
from my experience, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why my partner Cynthia and I don't play some of the dark, dreary games um, that are out there. Like, uh, you know, we kind of play in the, if we ever do play World of Darkness, it's always the world of mostly dimness mm-hmm. because. It, we we don't really want to live. We we don't want to dwell on a lot of negative things. At the same time, uh, some of the best stories are things where we confront uh, actual humanity and difficult situations. Well, and, I think. Oh, go ahead and finish. No, I I was going to say, there's ultimately. A lot of people, though, who don't who who say, "Well, we don't have time to talk about race and gender issues at our table," because, you know, then it will be all about that, and we won't be having fun. And I, I mean, I've actually heard this on podcasts. You know, we just don't have time for that. That's just that's you know, after school special stuff. You know. Um... Something someone said to me, which really, which really kind of summarized a lot of how I felt gamer culture works about this, is someone said to me, he went, why should we care about people of color? And he said that in the way of, um, you know, what makes you special? Why should we, you know, care about your issues compared to anyone else's? And, you know, my attitude was, if you just cross off of color, the question is, why should we care about people? And the only reason you should be asked, the only reason you're asking that question is because you're not seeing us as people. Um, you know, if you're playing with your friends, you're playing with four, you know four to six of your friends at a table, and you know it's like you're you know you're doing your thing, you're doing the game, you hit on something, you know, it's a touchy issue for someone. That's your friend. Do you not want to be okay with them? Like you know, your best buddy just broke up with his girlfriend, and now you're going to play this whole game. You're going to have this big breakup in the game. Is that really cool to do to your friend? You know, so if it's race issues, why would that, you know, why would that be cool? It's not like you have to do massive um, discussions, but there's a level of awareness. And for the most part, I am I look at that and say, that's not hard to do with your friends. You know, you get along as friends for a reason. Um, as a game designer, I look at, you know, if you're, do, if you're publishing, you have a bigger, a bigger uh, weight on your shoulders because you're doing mass media. You have a bigger responsibility, in my view, than the person playing. You know, it's like four guys get together and they play some, and it's completely jacked up and racist and whatever. I don't know about them. They're in the corner in the basement or their friend's house doing whatever. I don't have to deal with them. I'm playing a game that I enjoy and I want to share with my friends, and I show my friends the book, and it has horrible images of them that's insulting them and all their family and everyone, you know, who's related to them and looks like them. Well, how am I supposed to encourage them to get into the game? How am I supposed to say, and here's your hero? I can't, you know? And then as a person walking along, you know, you're walking along through the game shop and you're looking at stuff and you're saying, I might want to try out these games. Where are these all about? And you pick that up. What are you going to think? You know, it's just um, yeah, it... both from a business side and just from hanging out with your friend's side, it's not – I'm not asking great things. I'm just asking, you know, can you be cool with the people that, you know, you look at as your fellow gamers and your friends? Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, you know, I don't, I, I've, uh, I've seen how that, um, how that works because there have been times when I have started to explain something to somebody um, and then I check myself and I'm thinking about it and going, 
wow, that probably, I mean, if I'm talking to an American Indian and I, and I'm explaining to them about the, about werewolf. And I said, well, you can play a black fury or a Wendigo or an Akatina. And I look at them and they're looking at me like, what? (laughs) You know, like, what? Um, like, do I have to play that if I'm, you know, <laughs> am I required to play that? Is, is this my choice if I'm uh, American Indian? And I say, right. well, you know, no, obviously not. Obviously not. But it's not obvious to everybody. Well, I think the other thing is that there's so many, there's so much room to explore, um, to explore pulling from real world stuff in a way that does work. And it's just frustrating to see that people generally fall back on stereotypes um, for example, there's this game called Word is Bond. It's it's the hip hop magic game. You use hip hop to you know do magic, and I was like, wow, this is a completely awesome concept. I'm totally down with this. And you know, of course, they have the splats, and the splats are sort of like gangs. And of course, you have you know the black voodoo hip hoppers, and then you've got like the Asian hip hoppers who have the big yin temple. And I'm sort of like. You know, they were supposed to be based off the down. I was like, but we have Asian hip hoppers and, and they're breakers and there's DJs and there's so much real stuff you could pull from and actually make this work instead of just pulling from a stereotype. And it was just really frustrating to me because I was like, you know, this happens so often in games. That's like, there's so much real world cool stuff you can pull from or real cultural stuff. Instead, people, it's not even, like I said, it's not a lot of research. You know, just contact a few folks, get into a scene or two, and, and you'll meet these people, and you'll get a feel. Can you point out, I mean, I, I was wondering if you could point out any specific, I mean, to, to think about the positive side of things. I mean, you, you've already, you talked about um, uh, the uh, the game, the crime game. Um, what's it called? Mm-hmm. Uh, Dirty Secrets. Dirty Secrets. You talked about Dirty Secrets. Are there any other games you can think of right now that are really, they did their they did their homework and they're being as, as universally appealing as possible? Um, well, I don't know necessarily about universally appealing, but I think like um, like true to the source in a certain way. Uh, mm-hmm. Right now, the Blossoms are falling, which is a supplement for Burning Wheel. Right, I've it heard of that. A re- it's a really awesome supplement for um, for Burning Wheel. It's going over Japan, but it's not just like, oh, and here's Samurai. It, it actually starts looking into the complexities of, well, here's ideals people are supposed to live to. Here's what people really live to. Here are the ideals that actually didn't come until much later and became popular, but here's what, you know, here's more of a real situation. Here's people as three-dimensional beings and all these politics going on. And I thought it was really great because it's finally a thing where it's not just um, – what I call 30 seconds uh, seppuku man, you know, it's like, Oh no, I, you know, I said the wrong thing. Kill myself. You know, it's, it's, it's someone who actually can be a full human being and make decisions um, is really the focus of the game. And you don't see that a lot when you see a game set completely in another culture. That's a, that's, you know, based off a real world culture. Um, That's one game that I think is doing a really awesome job. Um, Steal away. Jordan, of course, is, is like, just blew me away because instead of giving you tons and tons of history of, you know, the American slave trade and trying to get people, well, you know, here's, here's my hope to counteract all your beliefs based on what the media has fed you. There's so much stuff in the system. You cannot play the game and not start seeing um, the same kinds of things happen 
in the game based on the way the system works that really do happen in real life in terms of race relations and privilege. Yeah, I really did. I was blown away uh, listening to the Game Master show. They had a, a demo of that game. Um, Julia Bond, Ellen Bowes, uh, Silhouette Jordan. Um, and I was blown away by it because clearly, yeah, the dice mechanics are all about power over, you know, the the whole situation framing. You know, you could you're 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 going to you're going to be set up pretty much to fail. I mean, you're not going to fail every single time, but even the successes you have seem to be tinged with um, a sense of desperation or you know a, a tenuous sense of there's just no way you can you can win. I mean, you can't. There's it just came back to me like you're not going to be able to win in this situation. You know, you're when you die, you win because you're out of the situation. I mean, that that's the way it seemed to me. And, well, I, I kind of walked away with a little different view of it. Um, like, because I think that's what a lot of people they look at and they go, "Why would I ever want to play that? That's horrible." And oh, well, know, actually, you know, I I actually found it to be very challenging to me uh, to, to to think about. But you know, go ahead and well, tell me what your what your perspective was. Well, what I'm looking at is that um, the raw dice mechanics, of course, make it really hard based on where your stats is in the society. Um, but the successful means to getting through it are exactly the same kind of successful means that, that people did use historically. They made alliances because you can call in your friends to get extra dice. They made alliances with the oppressors. They chose people who had more privilege than them to serve as um, gatekeepers. You know, you make friends with the slave owner's son. You, you know, get into love relationships. You get into romantic relationships that maybe you're in love, maybe you're using them, but you're doing whatever in order to get more of their dice to help you out. Mm -hmm. um, which, in, you know, sad enough, it's like in current modern day issues, you see the same thing happens. Um, there is a reason you see, you know, like, a rich American goes to, you know, some third world country, and then he gets himself a wife who's like 30 years younger than him. You know, and it, mm -hmm. it's a thing about you have people in desperate situations trying to get whatever power they can in order to help them and their people. And the, the dice mechanics are separate in the same same way. It's not just – it's not completely hopeless. It's that you have to use subversive tactics. You have to use subversive tactics. You have to um, you have to ally amongst each other. That's part of the reason that your goals are kept secret from the GM. The goals are kept secret from the GM in the same way that's like, well, you look like you're trying to do one thing, and then you pull a quick one and do the other to succeed on your goals. Mm -hmm. um, these all mirror real life tactics that people have used and do use, and so it's um, it's really interesting because I what I really want to see is I really want to see. Um, people who get that and who may have had to use those tactics compared to people who don't and see how the difference in play comes out. Um, a similar game, which uh, is still being play-tested and being wrapped up, which I think will be really great, is Dog Eat Dog, uh, which is being developed by my friend William Burke. Dog Eat Dog is really interesting because he is, um, he is basically, in the, in the same way that Steelway Jordan has this unfair GM kind of thing going on, Dog Eat Dog has it, it's a little more explicit, and it's all about colonization. And the trick that it has going on with it is that you develop a list of cultural traits for the oppressor and the oppressed 
and as you play the game, it's basically the people, the players who are playing the oppressed keep developing this list based on what happened in play, what they think the oppressor's culture is about. So, for example, if, you know, the GM has this situation where people get beat up for talking off turn, you know, the players could, you know, at the end of the scene, the players could go, well, you know, I think their culture is violent, and, you know, violent is a good thing. And then you get rewarded based on how you play to their culture. Wow. So that's another game which I think explores those issues in really interesting ways. Um, and it's doing so mechanically as well. Because I think, one, I think one thing is that, you know, all the color that we do, all the setting, doesn't necessarily transfer. But when you have the hard and fast rule, those things start to come out. I can see that. And it basically as a um, – it's sort of an experience that unpacks – a certain way to uh, and and deploys a certain way that basically means that you're going to end up taking away you cannot help but take away some uh, uh, I don't know sensitivity to situations like that I mean I, I well, can see I can see that it's yeah. a big it's a big uh, and I, I don't I'm not trying to put down the fact that it's still an entertainment it's still a game Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can be fun. Um, and uh, the situations can be, you know, humorous. I mean, you're talking to a guy who made a game about dying. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Wraith was terrible in that, in that respect. I mean, in terms of people would come to me and say, well, why would I want to play a game where you start out dead and you've got a demon thing inside of your head who's trying to destroy you? And then you then you trade coins made of little screaming soul bits. Yes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is the ultimate, you know, uh, concept of <laughs> depersonalization. Um, and it's just like, uh, oh, you know, um, why would you want to play that? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> Except, of course, in a situation where you have things you want to deal with in that context and you find it int- intriguing. There's still a lot of people who play Wraith. Um, right. I don't play it, uh, but I do support it because I made it. You know, I, right. I, I support it as, as a designer. Um, but ultimately, you know, I don't, there, there, there was meant to be more hope in that game than there is. Um, but ultimately, it is a valuable, you know, game design experience, and it is actually one of the only White Wolf games that actually has like story mechanics. Right. So I think, um, yeah, I definitely think it's interesting because folks, um, again, you know, it's like just like seeing people two dimensionally, they can see a game two dimensionally. Um, Steel White Jordan, you know, it's like, okay, it's about slavery. People immediately, their mind goes to the worst possible thing, which, you know, real-life slavery is. But there is also the slave narrative, which includes people getting free, people escaping, people overcoming. It includes uh, the more fairy tale style uh, slave narrative stories, which are humorous. Um, you know, it's like all those get all those get ignored because, for the most part, a lot of people aren't familiar with those. Um, you know, it's like, 
you could say in many ways that Beetlejuice is a rape story, <laughs> you know, mm. but did people see that? You know, it's like, you know, it's like, well, no, we like pathos. We like doom. We like gloom. It's like, well, yeah, but there's a lot more room we can deal with it. And I think that's true. Um, you know, and all, uh, uh, there's a movie called Always, which would be a good Wraith story. There was, you know, there's all these different um, movies that were released around the time that Wraith came out uh, that were Wraith, uh, very much Wraith-oriented. Um, and we kept seeing, oh, yeah, yeah, you could do, you could definitely do Wraith, you know, you could use Wraith to play this game, to play this movie, right. play, play this thing. Um, exactly. Well, uh, I would like very much to know about. Uh, you, you mentioned a game that you're designing. Um, do you do you want to talk about it here? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. All right. Um, so give us an idea what's what sort of game you're designing. The game I've been working on is called The Emperor's Heart. It's uh, it's my flying swordsman in space. You know, my kung fu movie in space kind of game, uh, which was basically um, it, it does tie into the race issue a bit in this interesting way, which was that I noticed that. In terms of media portrayal, in at least in the U.S., you know, in some other places, is that uh, Asia is forever trapped in its past. Um, mm. Lots of Hong Kong movies have been coming out with sci-fi elements, and you don't really see those um, really get, you know, big media play over here or get recognized. And the fact is, you know, geeks are everywhere. People like sci-fi. People like fantasy. People like all kinds of things. But only what really fits the stereotype usually gets to make it out here. And I was also kind of looking at Star Wars and the fact that Star Wars is this, you know, place where it's space opera plus Asian elements. And I was like, well, what if I take, you know, Asian epic plus sci-fi elements? And that's kind of the, the basic idea behind it. You're talking about um, the Kurosawa, the Kurosawa uh, inspiration for Star Wars. Well, there's that. There's also the fact that the Jedi are, you know, somewhat Taoist um, mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. terms of like, you know, and there's the mysticism, Ben Kenobi, you know, there's all kinds of levels of um, influence in there. And especially uh, now that we have the prequels where you can see they were watching a whole lot of Hong Kong movies to get action scenes together and, you know, getting direct, you know, fight choreographers and such. Um, and it's this interesting way in which it becomes uh, more acceptable based on who, what color, or, you know, how the person looks, you know, it's like, so if, you know, you have a white guy with a sword, it's Highlander, and people will flock to it. You know, you have an Asian guy with a sword, it's a, it's a small art house film, you know. Hmm. Um, in the same sense, I was like, well, let me, let me do a game where it's, you know, it's sci-fi elements. That, you know, it's, it's, it's the same flip. You know, it's your, your Chinese, you know, rebels versus the empire in space. You know, and the empire, of course, is... You know, your cyborg eunuchs. It's basically an update of all the classic tropes into sci-fi. Cool. Um, and, and as a game, it's GMless. It's designed to focus around trying to create the, the sort of swords and drama, soap opera, that you get in the movies. Well, that sounds interesting. And uh, I know there's a lot of... I mean, that's a big um, untapped area. I mean, I know that there's some some games that do um, they have the, the Hong Kong movie uh, aspect to them uh, but 
you know, I, I've never heard of them, you know, putting it into that genre, into that specific space opera sort of style. That'll be very interesting to see. It's um, in many ways, it's a very reactionary game. I also wanted to make a game that had martial arts with no like special rules for martial arts, no like special techniques and lists of powers you have to build or anything like that. So, in in, in many ways, it was just like I want to do the opposite of every you know traditional traditional RPG that's you know featured in Asian culture that I've seen. And the the point being to be surprising to to show people what could be done to to open people's worlds up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and maybe to a degree, but some of it was just sort of. Um, it's. It, I found a lot of the traditional stuff didn't do the stories it wanted to do very well. Um, if we want to do a soap opera, you know, if it's all about focusing on, you know, there's this love triangle, and then he's actually the brother of the emperor, and you know, but he has these loyalties to the rebels and all kinds of stuff like that going on. You know, 200 powers doesn't really matter. And, you know, spending a half an hour of game time, you know, rolling initiative and who who hits who, using what technique where, doesn't really feed into that as much as trying to focus on stuff like, you know, wow, they love each other and they're breaking up and, like, this is horrible and he's betraying her and all the kind of stuff that really makes um, the modern Hong Kong movie and, you know, the stories in which it's descended from really work. They weren't popular just because, you know, people were jumping up walls and kicking each other in the head. They were popular because they had these really, you know, over-the-top melodramatic soap operas going on. And so I want to be able to make that more of a focus. That makes sense. To have a game, have a game where I could pick it up in 10 minutes and play and get that going on and not, like, let's spend half an hour building up powers that aren't going to be the focus of our game. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's best to... You know, like in the uh, Platonic Design, the 19 questions, it's best to, to create a, a game that does what you want it to do, you know, to to focus on the, the aspects that are more interesting to you. And by doing that, you're creating a game that will, you know, let people experience something brand new that is not, you know, not something they're not expecting, which I think is good. Um. So, let's see. I think that's pretty much uh, all all the questions I had, and you get to talk about your game. And is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Uh, no. I think we've uh, covered a lot, and I'm sure maybe some months down the line or a year or two, you'll have some more questions for me. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, I will. I mean, and if you ever want to come back, uh, please let me know, and we'll we'll have you on. Or, um, you know, and I think that it's possible that. Uh, at some point or another, we'll have a. Uh, there'll be a lot, a few more podcasts that we'll be focusing on these issues. I noticed that you know Julia Bon Ellingbo has been on a, a few podcasts, but um, you know, hopefully, uh, we can have you on again. Well, maybe we'll do like a conference with several folks and see. What yeah, a roundtable from that. Yeah. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, maybe Clyde will want to do one uh, from theory from the for theory from the closet. He's he's good about that. Yeah. Okay. Um, thanks very much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. And sure thing. Uh, we'll talk again. All right. Catch you later. All right. All right. Hi, this is John Wick of the Wicked Dead Brewing Company, and you're listening to Sam Chup at the Bears Grove Podcast. Be sure to bring honey. Bear likes honey. Thank you for listening to 
the Bears Grove, number 37. If you have any feedback or comments about this episode, please don't hesitate to send me an email at bearsgrove at gmail.com. You can also go on the website. There is a way to send a voicemail directly through the website if you'd like to do that. This podcast is released to you under a Creative Commons Attribution, No Derivatives, No Commercial Use License 2.5. Thank you very much, and until next time, have sweet dreams when you get them. Captain Paula Mackey should have known better. The deal had looked dodgy and so it turned out. Now, deprived of her ship, her communication cap, and imprisoned on Plitone, the most disreputable dump she had ever known, she must find a way to get back to her ship. But Garda Grunt, Plitone's unscrupulous wheeler-dealer, has other plans for her. Welcome to The Plitone Revisionist, a podcast novel written and read by Paul S. Jenkins. Subscribe to The Plitone Revisionist at paulsjenkins.net or at podiobooks.com. Yeah, that I have to walk away and leave this dream behind.